everyone. Welcome back to Murder at Land Between the Lakes. I'm Lainey Sullivan. I'm here with Amelia Courtney, and we wanted to bring an episode to you guys today that really starts to compile a lot of the information in a chronological fashion that we can share with you. So we can really kind of dig into what was happening on that day that the girls disappeared and then what happened in the time between when the girls disappeared and the bodies were found, what happened then when the bodies were found all the way up until present day where we are today talking to you guys via our podcast. Um, So today we're going to go through a lot of those details and kind of piece that together and love, love, love any questions that you guys have or any thoughts that you have after listening to this podcast of anything that you could fill in or any additional thoughts that you may have based on sharing this information with you today. So I'm going to hand it over to Amelia to start on the day of the disappearance. Yeah. So thanks again for tuning in and thanks again for starting from the beginning with us. And like Lainey said, we'll start from September 17th, 19. So on that morning, Carla and Vicky, as we know, did not go to school that morning. And I think if you go back and you start, if you start from all the articles and go back and read, um, some, there were some conflicting reports of whether or not the girls did go to school, but we really know that the girls did not go to school that morning. So rather than not the girls missed the bus on purpose or not, um, we'll really, we'll never know that, but we don't think they went to school on purpose because we do think they wanted to say goodbye to their brother and so we know that um, they did not go to school that morning. And we know that they were on the phone that morning because their oldest brother, their older brother, Roger, um, did say that they were talking to someone that morning on the phone, and he does not know who they were talking to. Now, whoever they were talking to was not in school either. So either that person was older and not in school or did not go to school as well. So... Moving forward in the day, approximately 2.45 to 3 o'clock, Carla and Vicky were seen at the IGA grocery store. So if you walk out of the trailer and you take a left, the store is about five and a half miles down Highway 79. Now the girls were seen arriving in a greenish, yellowish colored van with Randall Riggins. But the clerk in the store that saw them saw them leave separately. Now, Randall left in the van, and the girls left on foot. So, now I'm just going to repeat it. When the girls left, Randall left in the van, and the girls left on foot. Now, the clerk tried to report this and report this interaction with the girls to the authorities as soon as she found out the girls were missing. And no one ever came to talk to the clerk until years later. Now, the cashier at the IGA clocked into work at 1 p.m. on the day the girls went missing on September 17th, and she vividly remembers both of the girls coming into the store with Randall Riggins sometime between 1 and 4, and to her recollection, the time was closer to 3. They arrived in the van, and they purchased a pack of cigarettes. Now, next, Carla and Vicky were next seen at the Furnace Convenience Store shortly after 3. So now that is where also things get a little tricky for this timeline and they get a little fuzzy because the furnace is approximately six and a half to seven miles back up Highway 79. So they traveled back up 79, past the trailer, and entered the furnace store. Presumably, they left the IGA on foot 
but we all know that they could not have walked the seven miles in this extreme heat in that amount of time. So if Randall didn't take them in the van, who drove them from the IGA all the way back to the furnace? Now, at the furnace, a young store clerk saw the girls purchase items there and saw them walk across the parking lot. But was that it? He never saw the girls again. Upon talking to this man, he wishes he could recall every single detail of that day. So then a witness not far from the furnace saw a blue truck driving down Highway 79 back towards the IGA. The truck turned around and came back and approached the girls. Carla and Vicky spoke with the man in the blue truck, but no one saw them get in the truck. It is not clear if there was more than one person in the truck or not. And the big question has always been, if the man in the blue truck exists, is he a witness or a suspect? Now, as we know, the girls did not come home that evening. Over the course of our investigative research, we have learned that Vicki was due in court in Paris, Tennessee, to turn in state's evidence against someone on the 18th. We have no corroborating documents to know the details or to even know if this is indeed a fact. But we do know that she asked a friend if she could borrow a pair of pants and that she needed them for court on the 18th. Also, to try to find more documentation under the Freedom of Information Act, we contacted the FBI to see if there was a file for the 18th for either of the girls. And the letter we received in return appeared and read it and was reading as the following. The material you have requested is located in an investigative file, which is exempt from disclosure. And it also includes the clauses and reasons that it is exempt. And then it was producing these records could re reasonably be expected to interfere with enforcement proceedings. So does this mean that the authorities were looking for someone in Henry County? In one paper, we did read that the sheriff of Henry County, Dickie Bomer, was contacted because there was a string of rapes and the Stewart County Sheriff's Department did want to see if the cases were connected. Sheriff Bomer was quick to say that he did not think that the cases were linked. So, Lainey, I, that was a tongue twister and I got through that. So would you like to take on the next piece? <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. So so going back to September 17th, 1980, there was other things going on. So the girls obviously had their their timeline. But what about Randall Riggins, Bobby Morgan and Randy Stout? We talked about them as well. And they had their own things going on on the 17th. As you guys may recall, Randall Riggins, Bobby Morgan, and Randy Scout were scheduled to arrive at the courthouse that morning to appear before the judge for previous drug charges. That morning, Bobby arrived at the trailer to pick up Randy. Randy was the brother of the girls. Um, and they came to pick him up to go to the courthouse. According to Randy, the girls cried about the boys having to go to jail and said their goodbyes. And according to Randall's sister, Leslie, that is when Vicki gave Randall the news that she was pregnant. The boys were then booked and jailed, according to records and family members. However, according to Randy Stout, only he was put into lockup. Randall and Bobby were released. If you were wondering, too, who to believe, well, eyewitnesses do place the girls with Randall later on that day. And we know he can't be at two places at one time. So, so just so you know, Randall also did confirm 
with a very reliable source in earlier interviews that he was indeed in the van described as this green funky color. He said the van belonged to his quote unquote girlfriend, someone by the name of Mary at the time. Um, so he was, you know, pretty corroborated with a couple different people out of jail that day and seen with the girls even later on that afternoon. However, Randy Stout was in jail until well after the girls' funeral. So he did remain in jail, but the other two were out of jail. So, Amelia, do you want to take what Greg Charlton was up to? Sure. Um, So although Greg was on the girls' property twice in the weeks leading up to their disappearance and had to be forcibly removed, he was never arrested. Deputy Albert Vyer says he always regretted never arresting Greg. He did um, fill out complaint forms that he did forcibly have to remove a drunken Greg Charlton from the property, not once, but twice, uh, once on the property behind the dairy dip and once at the other property where the girls lived when they disappeared. Um, He did fill out the complaint forms and those, both of those um, documentations disappeared. And also, too, we want to note that Greg had documentation that he was at a job site. Um, these were his work records that were um, provided. And he had a job that started on September 17, 1980. That, th- that is the exact date that the girls went missing. And this um, work record does not provide what time he started or what the location was of where he was, of where this job was. And Tim Webb claimed that he was with Greg in Dover on that day. If you were caught up with Murder at Land Between the Lakes and you are looking for more true crime podcasts to listen to, tune in to Searching for Ghosts with Brendan Barnett. In season one, Barnett covers the case of Casey Lynn McDaniel from Milan, Tennessee, who went missing in 1996. And in season two, he covers the disappearance of Bethany Markowski, who disappeared from the Old Hickory Mall in Jackson, Tennessee in 2001. You don't want to miss either season and listen to Barnett as he breaks down each case. We wanted to go into um, the girl's mom, Margie Nell, because what was she up to on that day? I mean, this is obviously a very traumatic time for her. So what we understand is that she was home that day. You know, from earlier accounts, we have heard that her car was not working. She was not able to get them to school when they missed the bus or they did not go to school. But she was at home that day. And that she actually reported the girls missing that evening, but was told by Sheriff David Hicks that the girls had probably run away and not to worry about it. They would probably turn up. So... She waited, and then the next morning, a youth services officer arrived at the house for the second time Margie Nell reported that the girls um, had not come home. So the local authorities presumed the girls were runaways, and an investigation for their immediate return did not begin. So if you can imagine, she was definitely communicating that the girls had not come home and she was worried about them. However, getting the investigation up and running was definitely a slow process because the law enforcement people who were involved at the time didn't believe that there was any immediate action or danger that was um, something that they needed to address. 
So then we go into what happened after the 17th. So those were some of the key players and some of the people that we've introduced you to in the podcast previously, what they were doing on September 17th. But then what happened after the day they went missing? Yeah. So, you know, the day after and the days after that, there was not a large manhunt for these girls. So um, as we've stated, Sheriff Hicks didn't even think, you know, that they wanted to be found, thought they had run away from home. And the many friends that we had talked to knew that the girls had not run away, you know, stating that they had no reason to run away. They had very few rules at home. Margie now, you know, wasn't home much. And the trailer served as a party scene for most, you know, for the most part. And the girls, you know, were really allowed to run free and do many things that they wanted to do. Friends knew for sure that they did not want to leave. And although it was a rougher lifestyle, the girls were very happy. And I asked Trish Gordon, the girl's oldest sister, what the family was feeling following the days after the girls went missing. And Trish said, Trish said that over the next 18 days, the family waited with the fear of the unknown. Were the girls out there somewhere tired and hungry? Had they been abducted? Authorities tried to convince them that they had left on their own. And they had all insisted otherwise. They felt like they were not being taken seriously. Sheriff Hicks and the youth service officer, Barbara Wallace, did visit the home to ask them about their friends. She specifically remembers the horror of waiting and wondering. A lot of different emotions all at one time. They felt as though the authorities had put no seriousness on their disappearance at all. They felt like they were left in limbo for the entire 18 days. So the next phase was actually when the bodies were discovered. Um, So during the heat wave of 1980, on October 5th, two hikers stumbled upon a very gruesome scene in the area of land between the lakes, known as Lost Creek. This area would unfold to be one of the most horrific crime scenes ever seen by the professionals that we did speak with. Carla and Vicky's decomposed bodies were found both with a fatal gunshot wound to the back of the head. After a study of the autopsy, both girls were shot at close range with a shotgun. Deputies Albert Viers and John Vinson were the first two deputies to arrive at Lost Creek to secure the scene. The next to arrive was Sheriff David Hicks and TBI agent Jack Charlton. According to someone that works at Land Between the Lakes and was there that day, all of the officers that work in the park were asked by Hicks and Charlton to leave the scene. All but one officer, an officer that was allowed to stay, and he was also a Stewart County deputy under Hicks. Officer, uh, the, all the officers that were made to leave were actually happy to leave the scene, not only because of the horrific nature, but because they felt as though things were not being conducted properly and they did not want to be a part of that. However, before they did leave the scene, They saw a blanket and shirt belonging to someone other than the girls being bagged, presumably for evidence. However, as far as anyone knows, these items did not make it into evidence and haven't been seen since. As we've reported in earlier episodes, it wasn't only the blanket and shirt that didn't make it into evidence, but we were told that many items that were collected and bagged were taken right out of the trunk of Agent Charlton's car when he was on his way to deliver the bags. Now, why would someone break into agent Charlton's car and take this evidence was he in the car at the time of the break-in or was the car left unattended with the extremely important and valuable evidence inside we 
we just don't know. Um, but that's what the and law enforcement has, <laughs> has told us happened to the evidence. Um, also, there was a bag of garbage found in the woods near, very nearby the crime scene. Um, and at first thought it might be evidence, but once it was searched through, it was found to be the trash from David Hicks's home. So how does that happen? Does it fall out of his car or did he use it as a dump site? We are a little bit questioning how the garbage ended up at the crime scene when they were investigating um, and trying to find evidence. Um, Then on October 31st, a composite sketch of the driver of the blue truck was released. Um, You have to remember in 1980 news did not travel like it does today. The girls lived in Dover, Tennessee. The bodies were found at land between the lakes all in Stewart County. Meanwhile, the composite pictures were printed in a paper that was a town or two over. The family, friends, and citizens of Stewart County weren't necessarily privy to this information unless they had access to this newspaper from this county. Many people were listed also as a suspect, and at one time there were as many as 30 people that were listed as suspects or persons of interest. We can't be certain of how many people were actually called in, questioned, or even exonerated from this list over the next few years, but they definitely had a laundry list of people that they had um, in question. Three weeks after the bodies were discovered, an article was published in the Leaf Chronicle, a paper located in Clarksville, Tennessee, in Montgomery County. Just as we had mentioned before, this article wasn't printed locally. The local people of Stewart County did not see this article either, and what was in the article was shocking, to say the least. The article was titled, Dog Patrol Could Serve Better with More Funds. It's written by reporter Maria Ballard. Its main focus is how canines are helping find more evidence at crime scenes, evidence that is missed by humans. In the middle of the article, ever so casually, it says, for instance, this team searched Lost Creek near Dover recently where Carla and Vicky were found. It goes on to say that the canine named Rebel and his handler, Gil Wood, found five articles of evidence that include a shotgun, yes, a shotgun, shells, and parts of the dead girls' bodies. The crime scene was three weeks old and had been exposed to many elements, including many heavy rains, and the dog was able to dig these things up. It wasn't until just recently that this article surfaced, and the family even became aware that the gun was even recovered. And then for many years, the family had zero communication from local authorities or any state officials. So from there, the investigation goes cold. So what happens? So years later, and in 2006, a guy from a prominent family in the town of Dover by the name of Tim Webb committed suicide. But just before he reportedly took his own life, he made a shocking confession to several people that it was his best friend, Greg Charlton, that killed both Carla and Vicky, and he too was there for the whole thing. Many people who knew Tim, knew Tim well, said that after the death of the girls, he changed drastically. He began drinking a lot and regressed into drugs. He would sleep in the woods for days at a time, even though he had a home, at the time, even though he had a home. He became a shell of himself, as one, for, as one former friend put it. 
Assuming what he told was true, he could not live with the guilt of this anymore, and he ended his own life. Then, in 2011, the Stewart County Sheriff, Derek Wyatt, reopened the case. Once the new sheriff came in, new talks started with the family. The family started talking with General District Attorney Ray Crouch. Things started to move along a bit, and in 2013, a blog was published called the Potneck News. This blog outlined the confession that Tim Webb made to someone in great detail, along with the mishandling of the case from the sheriff's department. Shortly after the blog was published, both Greg Charlton and Sheriff David Hicks filed a civil suit against the authors of the blog. The suit was dropped and the blog was removed. Also in 2013, Greg Charlton was given a polygraph by the TBI that he failed. At this time, it is unknown to us what prompted the TBI to perform that polygraph. The first memorial vigil for the girls was held in 2014. It was the only vigil that was attended by any law enforcement officer. In 2015, the TBI released new sketches of the man in the blue truck. These sketches would be released so that not only people in Henry County would see them, but, County, but Stewart County could see them as well as anyone in Tennessee, especially with the use of social media. These photos would also include age progression photos from not only 1980, but 2000 and 2016. In 2016, Tennessee Governor Bill Haslam offered a $5,000 reward to anyone with information leading to the arrest of Carlin Vicky's kidnapping and murder. In 2019, Amelia and I started the podcast, Murder at Land Between the Lakes, and we also started the petition for Parabon Nanolabs to test the DNA from Carla and Vicky's case. In 2020, David Hicks passed away. And coming up this year, this September 17th, 2020, will mark 40 years since Carla and Vicky's murders. Thank you for listening to Murder at Land Between the Lakes. This is an anchor production hosted and edited by Lainey Sullivan and Amelia Courtney at Discrepancy Podcast.